0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ the King. Christ the King. We have many thoughts about kingship. Here's one. Oh, I've got to turn it on. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Kingship. Even the Burger King form of kingship, we all on one level as part of our... American D and I want to claim that hey, to quote the late great Tom Petty, it's good to be king, if at least for one day, because on one level we all want to be kings or queens, despite whatever popular notions we may have. Our popular American version of it: there we go home to our castles for our warm suppers and all that, or perhaps we think of, from my previous tradition, more of the austere version of the queen and all of that. I'm not being dismissive of the queen. Or other popular assumptions of kingship or queenship or four British lads singing about a bohemian rhapsody and all of that. We, we have an interesting view of kingship today. And over the last few weeks, Pastor Milky has touched upon that with his sermon series, In God We Trust, about what we do with all that God has blessed us with. What do we do with the trust we have? Because that decision-making says something about the crowns we think we wear, isn't it? But there's some problems with this. As Pastor Milky has addressed over the last few weeks, and just to hone in on again, there's the danger that we think kingship is nothing more than going home and plugging in or going on our Wi-Fi and tuning out to the needs of the rest of the world because it's all about, well, the pursuit of happiness or the peace that we think brings us peace, and not, perhaps, to our neighbors around us. And on one level, I get it. I work a long day sometimes. I know you do too. We go home. We want to kick up our feet. I get that. I get we sometimes not only have long days, sometimes we're coping with other things, various stress, perhaps sickness, perhaps grief. And we need that stability, in our life, but there's a danger where we use kingship in our popular American version of it to hide ourselves in our castles and forget about the rest of the world because there's a lot more to kingship than just putting a crown on your head. A lot more about that. And before I get to all the powerful Scripture message that touch upon this today, a little bit about why this day exists. As I touched upon, this is more or less the uh, New Year's Eve celebration of the church. It came about in recent life of the church, in fact, the 20th century. And the church came together on this notion after the terrible atrocities of World War I, a time exactly 100 years ago when the world thought through power and kingship we could solve all of our problems we could do it. Modern secularism is nothing new. The idea of popular kingship goes back at least 100 years and even beyond that, that we can somehow take care of all the little things that cause us grief, and that's all we need. Those are the problems that helped bubble up and faster World War I. And after those calamities, church leaders got together and came up with this idea of punctuating the long green season of the church here which touch upon all the teachings of Christ, Jesus, and His earthly ministry, and putting it together in this idea of Christ as our, as our King, that Christ, after all the terrible atrocities of the Great War, Christ is the only one that can give us peace, not us, God and God alone. That's the message of why this day came about. And it also touches upon this whole idea of Christ's kingship, the whole totality of it, past, present in our own lives, and for what is yet to come. It makes this, this powerful knot of not just the green season leads into it, but of Advent and of all the things yet to come, because we celebrate the kingship of Christ, not just today, but in Advent itself, and Christmas, the king we wait for. Even on Good Friday. But today we mark the totality of it and what it means for us in our own lives. So it's a party. It's New Year's Eve. I don't see any whistles. Perhaps we'll do that later. But when we think about Christ the King and trying to come to our notion of kingship, I've heard a lot of sermons talk about us getting it wrong today. But I also hear a lot of sermons talking about, well, all right. If we don't always get kingship right today, what should we then be doing? And perhaps we come to this question. Honor do the king. How do we serve our king or our kings civilly or in church or with God? How do we do that? I think as Americans we scratch our head because we don't have a monarch, we have our idea of popular sovereignty as the Constitution makes clear, we the people. And we the people have lots that we do for our own nation. Obviously, everybody grumbles about taxes, but we also are called to serve our nation if we are eligible during a time of draft. We're called to vote, not even obligated, but we can vote of age. And of course, we're called to obey the common law. Now, historically, it goes even deeper than that. Prior to us and The old idea of kingship in the old sense of the word, that kings and the service to them often dealt with the power they had and the land that they gave out and how we served kings. And we might think of romantic medieval notions, not just in Europe but in other parts of the world, and we might think of, all right, serving a king is a lot like being a knight or a lord or some type of field commander or a lady-in-waiting and all of that, and we have all those romantic notions, and my kids get into that. And I know many of the kids I teach here at Trinity love that romantic notion of knights and all of that, and I don't know why I came up with this. Maybe it doesn't work for you, but Lego knights are quite popular right now. We serve our king through service as vassals, if you will. Yeah, the reality is most of us weren't knights, not even the glamorous kind or even the Lego kind, but The reality is, we were more like the rabble, at least most of us in our background, wherever we came from. We were the peasants. She's a witch. Um, Yeah, most of our ancestors were probably in service to the king as farmers, or millers, or smiths, or, or simple foot soldiers, and all of that, and in many parts of the world. Serving the king wasn't even glamorous. And below all of that, perhaps the lowest order of all, outside of being in servitude, was that of the lot of being a shepherd. Because a shepherd didn't even have land. Shepherd roamed about and all of that. This idea of shepherd pops up early. But even shepherds serve the king, right? So in the Bible, people serve the king in all these same basic ways as well as we think of in more modern history. But with one added twist. They served kings whose original line was that of the lowliest, a shepherd, going back to, of course, King David. But then King David was called by God, lowly shepherd, called by the God whose greatest title, as we hear of in the Old Testament, the Lord God of hosts. And so, we find this interesting tension between the people serving A warrior king and a peaceful shepherd. And we'll get rid of that skit there for a moment. Um, This tension. King, warrior, field of battle, peaceful vagabond shepherd. Which is it? And many of us still struggle with this image of God. Warrior or peaceful? Which do we serve? And many of us struggle with this today, don't we? And perhaps that tension plays out in our lives. We find this tension finding direction in that Old Testament reading of Ezekiel this morning. And Ezekiel writes during the exile when there were many corrupt kings who were doing the will not of the law or what the king should have been doing, but as puppet kings. And Ezekiel writes of a promised hope, of a prophesied new David, of what we think of of Jesus yet to come, of a new David who will come and finally establish everlasting peace. The hope after World War I goes all the way back to here and beyond that, that everlasting peace will come only in the servant king. And then, of course, we have the gospel reading next to it, and that's the challenging one, not Ezekiel, but in the gospel where Jesus Jesus has come, but the message continues to uphold this tension, Lord God of hosts and shepherd, judge and peace giver. Yes, Jesus is our true shepherd, and he will establish the peace we still desire. But as the gospel reading seems to say, we serve the king by serving the least of these. Hmm. And in our faithful obedience, we are haunted by those words of Jesus that begin with, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And as he goes through his list, he ends with, Amen. I say to you, whatever you did for one of the least brothers of mine, you did for me. I know many of you have been haunted by that, and so have I. I'm going to come back to those words in a little, but it seems like to serve this king, there is much to demand, much to demand, and I think there's a danger when I've heard sermons go down this road of how do we serve the King? How do we serve Christ? Because we come into this danger of treating God like this. All right, well, yeah. Paid my taxes. Brought supper home for the family. Uh, Went to church. um, Gave to some charity. I'm trying my best, Lord. I'm trying... And at the end of the day, I just feel like I'm ticking off a list, especially this time of the year with Christmas wish lists and all of that. And there's definitely a danger when we treat God as only a God that we can serve as best we can. And what I'd like for us to consider this morning is to flip things around, because the message today doesn't start with that at all, but rather today it's ultimately not what we can do of how we serve the King, but rather in accepting what the King has done for us what the king has done for us No. i know kings today some of us may still be hung up on that imagery i threw up here a popular notion that we still have today with the coins in your pocket of our popular notion of what kings do for us today we find them on our money whether it's the american variety or even the ancient roman variety and beyond that we think of what kings do for us sometimes in, in that sense, a monetary sense or an economic sense, but historically kings had to do a lot more than that, as they even do today, whether we call them presidents or leaders or beyond that. The king had to maintain the defense of the realm or even consolidate power. A king even had to serve in combat in many, many nations of the world, and many kings died on the field of battle. Kings had to maintain infrastructure, and not just on coins, but on roads and weights and measures and all of that. Kings, importantly, had to maintain the peace, at least if they wanted to stick around, and of course, the law, as well as not to be above the law, which seems to always historically be a problem with kings. And of course, kings had all those lesser nobles who were fighting who would take over next. Sometimes kings even had to answer to church people and religious powers. Interestingly, almost throughout all places in the world, after a king was coronated, one of the duties a king had to provide for was to be available to, of all things, to be touched because people believed the king to be set apart and to touch the king meant you might be healed or somehow blessed. See, historically, the king had lots of things to do instead of just producing an heir. The king had to be responsible. And we find many of these same traits in our biblical view of kingship with the line of David, and much of that applies what I just said. But there was an added emphasis that through God, the king was also the lawgiver, and that law and justice mattered perhaps even more than handing out pieces of land and power that the law is what bound people together above all else. And let's not also forget that imagery of being a shepherd and that ultimately, if we go back to David, a good king is a good shepherd. So, returning to that gospel reading, that gospel reading where we hear this, this image of Christ as not just the good shepherd, but the Christ who does a lot more for us as shepherd. Jesus is clearly aware of what it means to be king, all the responsibilities and upon himself, and he highlights two very unique ways that the king will do for us. And the first takes us back to those words of Jesus I mentioned earlier, those words that haunt us, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. And amen, I say to you, whatever you did for the least, brothers of mine, you did for me. We hear that. And I think we hear our responsibility loud and clear. I know it. I get that. And sometimes I feel guilty when I hear those words. I'm not doing enough. And while not unimportant, we miss hearing the first part that goes like this. For I was hungry. For I was hungry. This is the gospel right here. For I was hungry. Don't miss it. Jesus, our shepherd and our king, hungers for us. That's what the king has done for us. The king hungers, even to the point of wearing the ultimate crown for us on our behalf. The king hungers first. And when we get that, And when we come to faith in what Jesus hungers in us, then we begin to realize what we can do for the least of these, even our next-door neighbor. And perhaps we may think of those extreme examples. I might think of somebody like Mother Teresa, but even Mother Teresa got it. Mother Teresa, in all of her selflessness, in all of her desire to care for those on the streets of Calcutta, didn't forget that it was God hungering for us that came first. And this beautiful quote of hers, When Christ said, I was hungry and you fed me, He didn't mean only the hungry for bread and for food. He also meant the hunger to be loved. Jesus Himself experienced this loneliness in our rejection when we turn false crowns when we turn to all those other distractions. We start with Jesus first, and there we have it. And then there's that second provocative thing that Jesus mentions that he will do for us, this final great act of kingship, and that's judgment. We don't like to hear that word, but it's there. It's there. Sheeps and goats and all of that I know it's not cute, but we see that line up there. I'm not even going to read it. We all see it before our eyes. Yeah. Our final destination. Our final separation. The most provocative part about the celebration of Christ the King, Christ the Good Shepherd, Christ the Peace Giver, is that He will judge us under His teaching, under His ministry. And as terrible as that sounds in our day and age when we think that we are kings and queens by our perhaps our technological crowns to solve all the world's problems, our crowns of self-justification, we're still called to cast those crowns aside and find peace that it is Christ who gives judgment and not us. So, instead of asking the typical, all right, so king, how do we serve you, or, mm, What king do I serve? We should boldly ask, what has the king done for me? What has the king done for me? And then admit, warts and all, and I mean that, warts and all, I believe the king still hungers for me. And I will still serve. Nothing less. Nothing less. And then, to serve beyond that to even the least of these, as the king has done for me. And that might lead us to ask this last question. As I ask all of this, and as I ask myself, so, would you really want to be king? <laughs> would you really want to wear a crown? Burger King, or otherwise? Because at the end of the day, I'm glad you're not king, and I'm glad you're not king, and I'm glad oh, you're not king, or Trevor in his crown, he's not king, and I'm glad I'm not king. I am so faithful and delighted that that kingship is in God alone. And no matter how strong of words we hear today in the Gospel, at the end of the day, we are given that sense of peace to cast aside those false crowns and find peace in the only one who saves. And as Martin Luther also got it, I love this. Pray and let God worry. Pray and let God worry. Amen.